Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. I've got a good mix of movies this week, like every week. So let's <laughs> get into it. Okay, kick us off. <laughs> wow, that was, the, that was so quick. Okay, um, <laughs> we had lots of mystery picks this week. Mostly, I love it. Mostly because we had this big plan to go see Glass Onion on Wednesday, and it turns out Tuesday was the last day it was playing in yeah, theaters. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, and then we were like considering going to see the Fablemans on Friday, and then it was like minus 40 degrees in Edmonton, and we were like, nah, let's stay home. Yeah. <laughs> but we started with my mystery movie pick. I had two in mind, and I asked you if you wanted to watch a drama or a comedy, and you said comedy. So I picked The King of Staten Island, came out in 2020. It is a comedy slash drama. Yes. Directed by Judd Apatow, written by Judd Apatow, Pete Davidson, and Davey Cyrus. Stars Pete Davidson as Scott Carlin, Belle Powley as Kelsey, Marissa Tomei as Margie Carlin, and Bill Burr as Ray. Synopsis for this one. Scott has been a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died. It's weird phrasing. He spends his days smoking weed and dreaming of being a tattoo artist until events force him to grapple with his grief and take his first steps forward in life. What did you think of The King of Staten Island? Well, I have to go back to that. It's that I asked for a comedy as opposed to a drama. And then the movie started and we were, I don't know, 15 minutes into it. And it was just like very heavy. And I'm just like, this was supposed to be the fun one. (laughs) Well, later on, we watched my other choice. Yeah, this is true. And this was the quote unquote fun one of the two. (laughs) But yeah, I like I wanted to see this when it came out. Uh, a couple years ago, there's something that I really like about Pete Davidson. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that he's 100% slam dunk awesome, but there's just something I am really drawn to about him. Maybe that I think he's kind of cute. He is pretty cute. But um, but I also thought, like, just knowing Pete Davidson's history of the fact that he's he lost his dad in 9-11. His dad was a firefighter. So I'm just like, and this and this is loosely kind of based on that i thought this would be like a dead dad slam dunk yeah it wasn't really though yeah and that's where i was kind of let down i there was glimmers of where i thought the story could have gone that would have made it really really strong but for me it kind of started to fall into because it's directed by judd apatow it started just veering into the direction of apatowisms that i have grown to not like as much what are those 
he loves guys being dudes. Yep. Like he loves that just a bunch of guys hanging out, having granted this in terms of crass humor and kind of punch down humor. This is kind of the most toned down. Yeah, it doesn't of all of his honestly films. really any any of that is almost cr- it's critiqued within the film, I think. Yeah. Um he loves he loves improv, like he loves to let just people go and I think what what ends up happening with that in all of his films pretty much, you get beefy run times. Yeah, it was too long. Yeah, I I I don't think it needs to be this long. It Needs to rein in it a little bit. Like I feel like there's some more editing that can happen. And if he wants to go more long form, he's done television. Mm. Stick with television. Well, that was the yeah. This was interesting to me because there were moments with like the dead dad stuff. As someone, as as the resident person with a dead dad, that I did find relatable, and that I did like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really did feel like everything with his friends could have been taken out of the movie, and it would yeah. have been a stronger movie. Not that like I make movies or no anything about that aside from which we'll talk about later being an amateur but yeah it was just so this was the thing that was a little weird to me because there was a lot about this movie that I did like and I did enjoy watching it mm-hmm. um I almost think it was too weirdly not autobiographical enough mm-hmm. and then also too autobiographical like it didn't really stick in one or the other yeah that's a good way of putting it. Like it kind of wanted to tell this story, but it also wanted to have Be kind more of accessible. Ma- yeah, like have more mass audience appeal. Because like the last frame of the of the movie, if you don't know about Pete Davidson's story, it literally makes no sense. Yeah. But the rest of the film is not clearly like Pete Davidson's life story. Like I think about the difference between this and After Sun which we just saw for the third time yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And that phrase that Charlotte Wells uses about like after son being emotionally autobiographical, we're like, it's such a deeply personal film, but yet she also films it in such a way that it can resonate. Like she says, like make it your own. There's space for you in this. Mm-hmm. And that didn't feel true of this story. Like it neither felt like it really helped me understand Pete Davidson or his relationship with his dad and the grief of losing his dad. Neither did it, function in a super great way for me as a film on its own. Yeah. And, you know, in comparing it to after sun where it's a very deep and emotional take on family dynamics, I, you know, I'm not surprised like Pete Davidson would want to come at this from a more comedic kind of angle, but I feel like there were things about it that I really liked with Pete Davidson's like dialogue delivery. Mm-hmm. Like some of it was just very honest and very forthright with like, I have a dead dad and this is this, these are the effects that I'm experiencing as a, as a result of that and kind of navigating that. And it went for, I don't know it, it, the, the, the kind of humor it went for didn't always work for me. Like it did have more of that mass appeal sort of humor to it where I feel like it could have had, I don't know, maybe more of the gallows humor that I kind of like with it. Yeah. Like the opening scene has that. And I was like in on the opening scene. Yeah. This is the other interesting thing to me is I almost think I was more interested in the subplot with Marissa Tomei's character Mm. and would have just preferred the story to be hers. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know either. It feels like a weird. It feels like we're doing a weird like critique the movie thing, which I don't love doing. Yeah, like the movie is what it is. I think you know, like not to jump to how it made me feel, but I I think that I I had an expectation for it, and I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't pan out the way I wanted it to pan out. Tattoos were fun though. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the tattoos were really fun. Another thing for me too, like not to just kind of revel in the negativity, but I kind of have. I kind of struggle with Bill Burr a little bit just because he's kind of a shock comedian. Yeah, I don't know anything about him. I I haven't watched a lot of his stand up, but the little bits that I've seen, it's it's just he's a real guys guy, and that's just not my vibe. Like he's good in Mandalorian. Oh right. And he's he's not bad here. People uh, like him. I know that people like him. I just struggle with him. Is the thing. So when he's when I saw he was in this, that was kind of like uh, Bill Burr. But we like Marissa Tomei. Yeah. Love love Marissa Tomei. She does a great job in this. Mm-hmm. I think she's awesome. I will say, though, Bill Burr is fun to say. Yeah, it's a great um, Stan Lee name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's funny. I, I don't have much more to say about this film. It just like didn't hit me in the heart as much as I wanted it to. There were moments that I I did quite like and that I wanted more of, but... Yeah, as a whole, I just want me, it left me wanting a little bit more. Yeah, it's kind of that um, I didn't dislike it, but I also didn't love it. Yeah. So how did it make you feel? Uh, It made me feel like I want more tattoos. And yeah, just wanting a deeper emotional story. How about you? Kind of just gave me regular movie feelings, like the way you feel when you read a best-selling book like it's just it's the equivalent of a beach read oh that's a good way of putting it like i enjoyed it i liked the my time spent while i was watching it and that was about it Mm -hmm. you know like just when you go see those movies that are just they're just movies (laughs) yeah it's just regular movie feelings and i want to be clear i like regular movie feelings yeah then they just kind of go into the soup swirl of all the movies that have given me regular movie feelings. And in 2022, when there's been so many amazing movies coming out, it's uh, the bar has been set pretty high. But maybe we would have liked this better if we saw it in 2020 when there was almost nothing coming out. Yeah, we we're just like, oh, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Like that, it could have just been like, oh, everything sucks. But this is pretty good. Hey, they're not too bad. Context is everything. (laughs) True. Okay. My mystery and movie pick came next. I chose the 2008 comedy crime drama In Bruges. It was directed directed and written by Martin McDonough, who we recently talked about his film Banshees of Inisherin, which we absolutely loved. And much like that film, this also stars Colin Farrell as Ray and Brendan Gleeson as Ken, as well as Ray Fiennes as Harry. The synopsis is... Guilt-stricken after a job gone wrong, hitman Ray and his partner await orders from the ruthless boss in Bruges, Belgium, the last place in the world Ray wants to be. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we kind of talked on our episode when we after we watched Banshees about wanting to kind of dive a little bit further into this. And when we went with our buddy Ashley and our partner Perry to see Banshees, they were like, you've never seen him Bruges? And I remember hearing people talk about in Bruges and saying they loved in Bruges when it 
came out in 2008 a whole bunch. But I'll get into that a little bit more. But for now, what do you think of Bruges? Oh, it's tricky. It is tricky. There's such a weird experience um, when you watch something and you're able to directly think about what you would have thought about it if you'd seen it at the time. Yes. As opposed to some of the things where we've gone back and watched things we loved in the past and then watch them now and we're like, ee. <laughs> yeah. So this one's tricky because there is so much I love about it. Like so, so much I love about it. And mm-hmm. having just seen Banshees and that, I mean, my mom was listening, which she's definitely not. She would be um, appalled at how many things I've called my favorite movie of all time this year. <laughs> you can only have one, she would say. Um <laughs> And Banshees seems like it's going to be something I'm going to love forever. Mm-hmm. To be clear, I don't think you can only have one favorite movie of all time. Different movies for different moods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was excited to, to watch this. And it just had 2000s written all over it. Yeah. And when you and me were 10 to 20 in the 2000s, 10 to 19, right? Um that right yeah yeah that's a tricky time in a person's life right very everything's very influential yeah so going back and watching this and being like i would have thought this was the funniest thing if i had seen this when i was 18 when it came out it also has that like 2000s sheen um mm-hmm. we hadn't quite figured out like hd and stuff yet that actually i hadn't thought about that the fact that we were starting to transition to digital filmmaking and what that looked like and what that meant and the two and the the aughts have this it has i wouldn't even call it gloss it's just like this figuring itself out yeah it's like an awkward pubescent stage of filmmaking it totally is and it's like as soon as i put on a film that's in that and it's like in the I don't know, like 2002 to like 2010-ish range. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> right. And it it like catapults me back to that time in my life. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was a little tricky because some of the aughts humor is really gross. Yeah. And having seen Banshees and knowing that Martin McDonough can be absolutely hilarious without punching down. Yeah. And that Colin Farrell can deliver a line like nobody else. Mm-hmm. I was like, eh. Like, there was a line at the start of this film that I thought was one of the funniest things I had ever heard. <laughs> yeah. But I mis- misunderstood the line. Mm-hmm. So the line, I'm just going to say the line, is like, um, here's a gay beer for my gay friend and a normal beer for me because I'm normal. So I thought Brendan Gleeson's character was gay. Yeah. No, but it turns out it's just like, being like, you're gay, haha. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that was so funny when I thought he was being like a gay beer for my gay friend and a normal beer for me because I'm normal, which I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to quote that often, but the intention behind it was very different than I think if you heard that line today. Yeah. Because hearing it now with today's lens, you and I thought it was hilarious. Oh yeah. We assumed Brendan Gleeson's character was gay and it's not until like half an hour into the movie that he talks about like his wife and you're like, oh Oh, so he was just like calling him gay and that was supposed to be like an insult? Hilarious. Ha ha. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> but probably in 2008, I would have thought that, that was hilarious mm-hmm. in the way it was intended to be as opposed to my different reading of it now. So that was tricky because it wasn't as gross humor wise as like some of the things we've revisited and been like, oh. Yeah. Neither was it as 
Like there's some things we've revisited and been like, oh, this actually like still holds up completely. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just like with its weird pubescent figuring out of its um, visual style. It seems like it's there with the humor too. It's kind of in this in between. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's it's that thing of where I feel it came out and I remember everybody that has seen it talking about, oh, you got to see in Bruges. It's amazing. And like now there's so many people that, you know, you look on Letterboxd and stuff that have rated it so high and love it so much. I wonder if they've done that before rewatching it now. Like they're just kind of basing that review on how, what they felt about it in 2008 or that in the aughts when they first saw it. But when you love something, then you tend to continue to love it. And here's the thing. The last third of this movie is so good. Like I was kind of like, this movie's fine. I like Banshees better. Mm -hmm. And then the last like third ish, I'm like, oh, I see why people love this movie. I see why this is so many people's favorite movie of all time, especially if this is kind of the first time you've encountered a film that goes in this direction. Mm -hmm. I really liked the ending. Yeah, I thought the ending was great. Um, I'm just thinking about, I'm just thinking about what you said. I I feel like it's different for people. You know, some people might give it like five out of five after they saw it for the first time and might still think of it as a five out of five. Um, probably cause they just watch, they might watch films differently than us where something we might've given a five back when we were 18 revisiting it. Now we might see the, the faults in it and knock that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like we've just, we're just kind of more critical of the stuff that we, you're really we making love. it sound like we're better than everybody else. No, we're just, uh, <laughs> we like to be stinky poo poos about stuff a little bit more. This is than true. We, than we used to. Yeah. We like to read things, the riot act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be in Bruges. Shame on you. You could have been better. Okay. Here's a question I have for you though, because, I'm curious if you have a prediction. You know those things where you like have to guess how many candies in a jar and then you can like win something? Yeah. How many times do you think the word fuck or a derivative of fuck is said in this movie? What's your guess? I'll give you the runtime of the movie. 184. It's a one hour, 47 minute movie. 218. Well, that's just going to be disappointing. 126 times. So it's 1.18 fucks per minute. That's great pace. But here's my real question for you. Fucking or fecking? (laughs) (laughs) Fecking. (laughs) Fecking. Well, also my my fecking donkey's shite. Because my little pony's shite shows how much you were listening. (laughs) Man. It just, yeah, if anything, it just made me want to see Banshees again because Banshees is so funny. It takes the best of the humor that exists in Bruges and amplifies it and makes it so much better in Banshees. But that is something I really appreciate getting to watch in by, you know, we, I think the first Martin McDonough film that I saw was Three Billboards. Mm -hmm. You as well? Yeah. Which I, I thought it was so well made and so well acted. I just had some personal issues with it um and then seeing banshees and like being like i am obsessed i am in love this is amazing i can't wait to watch this again and again and then going back to this knowing that it's a fairly beloved movie i really 
like getting to see that an artist is growing and trying new things and has a style and a voice that is his own that that runs through all three of those films mm-hmm. and yet seems to be continually using that style in new directions and to do new things. And so that's really cool to see. Like, I don't think you get Banshees without Imbruge. And I personally like Banshees better, but I also understand why somebody would like Imbruge better. Well, it's interesting too, because it's almost like he knows that he has award worthy films in him. And, but it feels like his style, having not seen all of his films, obviously, but it feels like his style is to live in this sort of tongue in cheek, silly, but dark humor that exists in Bruges, in Banshees, likely in Seven Psychopaths. But then he kind of departed from that to do like this more dramatic piece in Three Billboards, which, you know, got him some awards attention. But Didn't it win stuff? I thought it won stuff. I don't know how well it did. But I feel like he, sw- like he kind of swung fully that way as opposed and start getting away from like the comedy side of things. But now I feel like with Banshees, he kind of hit the sweet spot between drama and the kind of witty, funny dialogue that he can write. And I feel like that's kind of the best of what I've seen of him is Banshees and what he's able to do. But it should be. I mean, this is what I tell my students about their writing. The, every next essay you write should be your best because you should just be getting better. <laughs> right. The more you do something, the better you should get at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you got to do other stuff first. And like in Bruges is really strong. Mm-hmm. Like it's got a voice. It's got like the script in terms of where the plot goes is incredible. And whether or not you like him or not, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell's characters oh. are, are great on-screen characters yeah they pair so well together in both this and in banshees um and i think you know like with a hereditary midsummer like some people like hereditary better some people like midsummer better like it's it's also going to be about what speaks to you in each of these films but what's cool is that he has a voice and he has a style but he doesn't just replicate the same film over and over again Mm. he takes that style and does different things with it like i heard colin farrell um, I think it was in an interview and I watched where he said that he sees in Bruges as mostly a comedy punctuated with these moments of like intense seriousness and darkness. Mm-hmm. Whereas he sees Banshees as primarily a drama punctuated with these moments of like levity and hilarity. Mm, yep. And so they're two sides of the same coin. And Martin McDonough is able to do both of those things, the levity with the darkness. Yeah. He's just adjusting the ratio of each. Yeah. But and, he's really good at both of them. And I I think you and I lean drama. Drama first. Yeah. Uh over comedy. Yeah. Um if you're wondering, Three Billboards was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress for Francis McDormand, Best Supporting Actor for Harrelson and Rockwell, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing and Best Original Score, mm-hmm. and Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell won and it didn't win anything else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. The most important thing is that this movie has put Colin Farrell back on top. He is now my most watched actor. And you, you little piss, we're going to bed. You come out from brushing your teeth and you go, oh, no, this was later. Just kidding. It was in a movie we watched later in the week. You came out and you said, oh, bad news. 
Casey Affleck was a background actor. <laughs> and I was like, shut up. Casey Affleck would be a background, like a an extra, and we didn't know, and then you just laughed. <laughs> such a piss. <sighs> I liked this movie, though. I just, I wanted to love it as much as I loved Banshees, and I think it um, makes me feel too icky about things I used to find funny. Yeah, I think that's it. It kind of makes you confront the version of yourself that you know would have absolutely unabashedly loved this movie. Oh, if I saw this in 2008, it would have been my favorite movie ever. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's interesting now to watch it now because I just feel like... Is it interesting now to watch it now? It is because <laughs> I feel like Banshees was hilarious without having to punch down. Therefore, it'll age better than in Bruges will. Let's see. Who and knows? aesthetically, it also looks much better. Oh, we- I am just convinced, though, that in in 15 years we'll watch it and we'll find a reason to be embarrassed about everything. Things we think are so cool now. Yeah. Remember when we thought low-rise jeans were cool? We probably thought those were going to be cool forever. <laughs> Get them out of here. How did uh, Embruge make you feel? So it did make me feel a little embarrassed and ashamed for my 2000s self, but it made me excited that McDonough's continued to grow and develop his art while maintaining the core of what his art is. Yeah. Which I think is really amazing. And I'm excited to continue seeing the films that he makes. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. It was, I'm, I'm, I was also grateful just to see that growth happen on the screen, having watched Banshees just so recently and then having, you know, finally seen this. So I'm very happy to have seen in Bruges. Um, I'm, I was disappointed in some of the humor it chooses to kind of revel in and lean so heavily into. Um, but yeah, there is some ableism. Yeah. And I think that that kind of ages the hell out of it a little bit. But I, I don't think you get to Banshees without Imbruge. So I, in a way, I'm kind of grateful for this movie. Now the ending is something. Okay. Then I got to pick my drama. Yeah. So the one that I was like drama or comedy on Sunday and you picked comedy I was like, okay, hey, well, then my next one's going to be uh, the drama. So I, this came up when we were having a hangout with some new friends of ours. We had a little uh, board game night where we ended up not playing board games. Yeah, just talking um, the whole time. Just talking and, and Very cute. becoming the good friends we are bound to be, I know. And they mentioned that they, the four of them mentioned that they had watched this together, I believe. Um, and... It kind of had not been something I was super keen on watching. But then I was like, let's check it out. So I picked The Power of the Dog. Came out in 2021. It was a big player at the Academy Awards last year. It's a drama, Western, and apparently romance, which I take a little issue with. Yeah, romance can get fucked. (laughs) But all right. Is directed and written by Jane Campion, and it's based on the 1967 novel by Thomas Savage. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil Burbank. Such a fun name to say. Phil Burbank or Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch? Cumberbatch. I like saying it. Uh, Kristen Dunst as Rose Gordon. Jesse Plemons as George Burbank. And Cody Smith McPhee as Peter Gordon. The synopsis is charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. What an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I think I spent most of the film being like, 
I hate this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Phil fucking sucks. But, you know, this was one that it was easily accessible because it was on Netflix. But I think you and I can get a little bit like, eh, awards. Eh, eh, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We definitely could get like that, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so we never watched it. What'd you think of it? Well, at first, I just want to circle back to you said like this wasn't really something that grabbed you and made you want to watch it. And like you said, it makes us kind of around it. Like, what is it about it that was like, I don't want to watch Power of the Dog? Um, well, okay. I don't like Westerns. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't care for them. I live in the prairies. I don't need to see the prairies. (laughs) (laughs) Like. I've seen it. The prairies are tough. Yeah. They're flat. They're the same thing. Like, I get it. Some people come here, they come to Alberta and they drive and they're like, oh, beautiful canola. And I'm just like, (laughs) when we drive from here to Calgary, it is just a straight line and it is just wheat fields and flat grasslands with cows and horses in them. And I know that there's Banff and Jasper and all of that. But also, I don't give a shit about mountains. I mean, where's the beach? I like mountains. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's part of it is like, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to see the prairies. So I live the, in the prairies. It's the setting and the genre for you. The setting and the genre. And well, I mean, what I associate with Westerns is just like this macho cowboy spitting guns, dueling, um, brawls. Horses, saloons, drinking. You hate it. Racism. Yeah, I hate racism. Colonialism. Yeah, I'm just like not that interested in it. And also like when I look at archetypal characters, the outlaw is not the one I'm drawn to. Mm. Like mm-hmm. Han Solo is not my favorite character in Star Wars. And um, Who is? Oh. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. I mean, probably no one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to pick my favorite Star Wars character, I'd probably pick none of them. (laughs) Can you list some of the characters? (laughs) I don't want to do this. (laughs) I mean, like, I guess Luke. Boring. Or like Yoda. Yoda. Why? (laughs) Because I like the sage. Uh, yeah. In terms of the archetypal characters that I'm drawn to, I like, I like the sage. I like the mentor. I, you know. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> so sorry to all the Star Wars fans out there. Um, yeah. So like westerns, I'm just not drawn to. So that was it. And then also just like, I can get a stink on about like awards films, which mm-hmm. is like a me problem. I, I get it though. Like for me, it's just if it, it, some films can feel very grabby. For awards, you can kind of feel, you, even if this isn't the intention, you kind of just view the filmmakers as like, if we do, if we nail this very specific formula, we're going to win some Oscars. But that's the perception. It's not the reality. Exactly. Right? That's it. Um, as I said earlier, context is everything. Yes. I once had a conversation with a friend and um, creative mentor who also really likes film And he said, if he doesn't see a film before it gets nominated for awards, he struggles to see it. And and I'm Mm -hmm. fairly similar. We were talking about Nomadland at the time. Right. Um, And it was after it had already won Best Picture. 
And he was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to see it now. Mm. And I think you and I are pretty similar for the most part. Or we'll watch yeah. it with a sense of cynicism, like, oh, this got nominated for awards. You're right, though. It's totally perception. Because, like, I imagine there's people that feel that way about everything everywhere and after Sun and decision to leave. But, like... Well, this is the thing. So, I, Kylie Burton, am an influencer. <laughs> this is true. As of this week. As Well, not even. A couple weeks ago, we were hanging out with some friends. And they were like, what's that movie you keep talking about all the time and then you said someone at your work was like after sun is that that movie kylie always talks about <laughs> like yeah. so i am influencing on after sun but i had a handful of people like not just one go see after sun because i won't shut up about it <laughs> on my personal social media um this week and then there's this like kind of paralysis that happens to me where I'm like, well, what if they don't like it after I like hyped it up? Or what if they don't like it because I hyped it up? Yeah. Right? Because I made it out to be such an amazing thing. Thankfully, at least the ones who spoke to me, who don't hate me now, um, they liked it a lot. And then, uh, you know, a couple of them listened to our uh, our daddy deep dive and uh, said that it, you know, had the, had the film resonating with them even more, which, you know, means a whole lot to me. So I just would like to say, again, I... I'm an influencer. You are gorgeous. And if all I ever do is influence people to watch After Sun, that was a kiss. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So back to Power of the Dog. So yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to see it last award season, but it was like mm. very like bottom mm. of the list of things I wanted to see, and obviously we never got around to it. Because you and I actually do try and watch all the awards movies in a like mm -hmm. to be informed way. Like, how can you critique something you haven't seen? And I feel like even now more so because we have the podcast that we're going to be, I mean, that's where I'm starting to lean is like, I'd like to be informed on as many as possible. Even if that means we go see the whale, which we're very conflicted about, um, oh. which is likely to be nominated for stuff, but maybe not. Um, well, and then, so we didn't watch it. And then this actually got put into the criterion collection. And as, stinky pinky as we can be about awards movies we are the opposite about criterion we're like it's in criterion it must be Ooh. amazing <laughs> <laughs> so we're easily influenced yes um, um yeah we are suckers but i think i only saw the trailer for this once and i i was glad to kind of go into it not knowing much about it so as it was unfolding I, it kind of took me by surprise it took me by surprise of how big of an asshole Benedict Cumberbatch's character was. Oh, I have rarely hated a character as much as I hate him. Like I, you and I don't typically talk in movies, even at home. Yeah. I just kept turning to you and be like, being like, seriously, I hate this guy. Yeah. And like, I don't do that. But I'm like, if I met this guy in real life, I would want to pummel the crap out of him. And I am not a violent person. Yeah. No, I just want to flick him. Oh yeah, right on his nose. Yeah, or the middle of the forehead. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but somebody that really stuck out, stuck out for me in this was Kristen, Kristen Dunst. I really like her. I do too. But she was the saddest person in yeah. this movie. Like she, she just, she conveyed that sadness so well and just so quietly. Yeah. This movie was really good at just making you feel very big emotions for the people that were in it, whether it was wanting to flick Benedict Cumberbatch, 
or just wanting to put an arm around Kirsten Dunst and just give her a hug and try to make her feel better. Um, and then it's all just anchored by the setting and the time and the time that this takes place in that. And that in itself feels oppressive Yeah. on top of the plot. And when you're from the prairies, doubly so. Well, and especially when it's like minus 40 and you can't go outside. Well, so this was the thing too. You and I actually mentioned to each other while we were watching it that it's set in the 1920s in America. Mm-hmm. The Banshees of Inishirin is set in the 1920s in Ireland. And I was like, oh my goodness, I would much rather be in the 1920s in Ireland. Yeah. And there's freaking like civil war going on in that movie. And still, still I would ra- rather, be, rather there be in Ireland. On the cliffs and like with the water and yeah. And the the like stone taverns as opposed to these dusty, everything's dusty yeah. and like <laughs> wooden and falling apart. I'm just like, oh my, I think I said to you, I could not have lived here in the 1920s. Yeah. I think this you is said, where we're from. I think you said something to the effect of the dust bowl can get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> like we have ancestors who lived here in the 1920s. How did they do it? Why are we here? <laughs> Um, I want to talk about the thing that solidified this movie as an incredible movie for us, which was the ending. Wow. I like for most of the movie was like, I like it. It's beautifully shot. It's really well acted. I am compelled. I am engaged. And that's, I thought I was going to kind of have like King of Staten Island, like movie feelings, but a little bit more like movie feelings, but art. Yeah. You know, instead of movie feelings, but blockbuster, which is what like King of Staten Island felt like. Right. And then the ending. It, masterful. I loved it so much. Yeah. It, it, it didn't get to hit me as immediately as you because our cat decided to start chewing at cords behind the TV. So I had to deal with that. So I was kind of, my, my attention was torn. Yeah. So this, in this week's rendition of Bad Audience Member, it's Thompson. Yeah. What a brat. Poop but him. yeah, like this, it's interesting because I read a review from somebody who like, I usually really, we usually really agree with each other on movies on Letterboxd. Mm-hmm. I don't personally know them, but we follow each other and they were like you could see the ending coming a mile away and i was like well i couldn't yeah if that means we're big dummies i'm fine with that you know what i am like that i I tend to be like if i can see the ending coming from a mile away the movie's really not doing what it should because i don't typically succeed or try to predict endings i i tend to Oh, it's going to get kind of therapy here. I think movies are the only time in my entire life where I'm able to be present in the present moment because I have oh. such terrible anxiety and I'm always focused on the future or the past. But when I'm in a movie, I'm just in the movie in that singular moment. Oh, that's interesting. Is this yeah, I probably should take this to therapy <laughs> on Thursday. <laughs> wow. No, that is really interesting. Like I'm not trying to predict the ending of the movie. And the only time that happens is when I feel like it's so telegraphed. Like there were a yeah. couple times I, I leaned over to you and don't read her. Like it was like, clearly it's this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. Like I don't, and I feel like I probably did it more before we started watching movies regularly together is that I, I would maybe try to do that and then lean over and be like, it might be this, but yeah, I feel like on exactly like you said, unless it's kind of telegraphed or like there's a piece of information dropped that's alluding to what eventually is going to happen. Then then I, yeah, I usually just kind of am present in the moment. But it feels like recently in so many films, we don't get a good twist. We don't get like a good M. Night Shyamalan Sixth Sense twist. And I don't know that I would call this, I don't know that I would say this film has a twist, but 
The ending is masterful. There's not a, well, there's not a lot of films that I can remember seeing that are more recent where you kind of gasp, where you're kind of like, oh, I see. Although In Bruges kind of did a little bit to me too. In Bruges had a really good ending. But there's a different long game being enacted with Power of the Dog that you and I love a slow burn. Mm-hmm. We love a visual language in film. Like in Bruges, talk, 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 talk. Yeah. Like Martin McDonough is so good at like bantery dialogue, right? Whereas this film is quiet and vi- creeps up on you. And visual. Like it relies on your visual, your on visual cues and very specific visual things for you to put the pieces together. Not unlike Afterson. This is true. Which um, can be challenging for you as a non-visual person. But here's the other thing. I'm good at it in film. I'm not good at it when our friend of the show, best friend, best buddy Ashley, sends us a uh, video zooming in onto, into an aspect of everything everywhere all at once. And I hear you cackling in the bathroom. And I'm like, I don't get it. It's because the calculator says boobless. <laughs> And then as soon as you pointed it out to me, I was like, ah. Yeah, boobless, yes. Yeah, I don't catch the the things on the phrase or the edges, mm-hmm. but I can get the like. Meat and potatoes. <laughs> no, like the like evocative central imagery. But think of it this way. That stuff is so heavily relying on literary technique. Yes. On symbolism, on motif. It's literally my job to think about that. Yeah. So I'm picking up on the symbolics on an abstract level as opposed to maybe a visual level yeah whereas you're picking up on it on a visual level and that's where we combine our powers or (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) Um, uh yeah so i don't know I, i some people thought this movie was boring as the internet told me but i loved it and it after it ended and I was able to get out of the like, A, the whoa, and B, the Bendit Cumberbatch, so mean. Like, it left me, not unlike After Sun. Take a shot every time I mention After Sun. <laughs> he won't survive an episode. Um, movies that linger, that like, you know, I love when you and I, Sometimes at the same time, sometimes independently, or like, I can't stop thinking about that movie. Like, the more I sit with it, the more I like it. This is one of those ones for me. The more I sat with The King of Staten Island, the less I liked it. Yeah. The more I sat with Come and See, the more I liked it. Yeah. Right? Like, so this one is like that. And I think an After Sons of movie like that, like, it lingers and it turns over and it, you keep thinking more and more about it. And what this, like, you know, this just kept bringing up the question for me of like, what makes a person mean? Like Mm -hmm. what turns someone into someone mean? Cause Phil is so mean. Well, and mean spirited and what, yeah. And what makes somebody go out of their way to be mean? Yeah. Like they go, not just grouchy, not just Scrooge, not just passively, but actively petty. Yeah. You know, like I just, and I think what I love is that this film in filming it in this slow, visual way it puts that question back on the viewer right Mm -hmm. i don't like when a film tells me exactly how to feel i like when the film and a book and music art in general 
offers me some questions for me to reflect back on. Because mm-hmm. we don't get those answers. We get glimpses and we get pieces of like what has made Phil so awful. Yeah. But then that can be a reflection for us. Like what turns a person sour? Yeah. And I, and I love that. I love a film that can make me think these bigger questions about life. Mm-hmm. I've been really um, bending my students' minds with big ideas like, like this with Life of Pi lately. Like, mm. like, what is belief? What is memory? What is faith? What makes us go in any of these directions? Love it. Yeah, I agree. I love it too. It just makes it for such a such a more involved watch like you're just able to the the it feels like the movie is like kind of bringing you into its circle a little bit more mm-hmm. and wants you to be a part of the conversations that exist in it about it around it yeah it's it's much better than just it and it to you on a platter of like here you go here's all the thoughts and feelings you have to feel about this mm. or that you get about this that's it. Yeah, I like when people have different thoughts and feelings because the film gives space for all of those, which can be, I thought it was boring. I thought the ending was predictable. That's fine too. Yeah. It also is a little bit Shakespearean. Totally. Like it, it has a five-act structure. hmm And my stupid English teacher brain is just like, ah, the exposition, the rising action, the, the climax, the fatal flaw. Ooh. Oh, denouement. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the restoration of order. Ooh. <laughs> um, but it did feel very Shakespearean tragedy. Yeah. I mean. But you, make it Western. You know better than I do, but. I do. I, I, I agree, though. Um, something that was really notable for me was the, uh, was the music, the score in this. It was done by Johnny Greenwood, who is a member of Radiohead. And he's done the score for a few movies. But I remember I was saying like, this score has a very There Will Be Blood kind of vibe. He did the score for There Will Be Blood as well. Oh. Um, yes. But it, I do think the the one film I can say that had a similar vibe to me is There Will Be Blood. And some of the other comparisons, I'm like, eh, those are cheap comparisons. Uh, yeah, I agree. I felt, the close, I, I felt a close tie, not just through the music, but through the film as well. He also did the music for uh, You Were Never Really Here. Oh, I like that movie a um, lot. And the way I kind of described it is it's kind of like a dark quirkiness. Like there's kind of like this foreboding. It's also how I would describe myself. <laughs> I, Kylie, have a dark, dark quirkiness. Um, I asked you this question after we watched the, or I think while we were watching the film. And I want to ask it while we're recording is if they were m- making Harry Potter films now, Oh. As opposed to then, there's no doubt that Benedict Cumberbatch would be in those films. And then I asked, who do you think he would be if it was being made? Yeah. And then we listed every character. Because <laughs> he could literally be anybody. He could be the boy himself, the boy who lived. <laughs> no, he couldn't. Um, <laughs> He's too old for oh, that. Oh, yeah. No, we have computers. Just make him smaller and DH. <laughs> he him. could be Dobby. He could be Hagrid. No, we said he could be Voldemort. I think, well, my, the first one that came to mind for me was Lupin. Yes. I think he'd make a great Lupin. I think that I actually think he would make a really good Snape. I it's hard to see anybody other than Alan Rickman be Snape, but I think the one you threw in the hat that I can actually see really well too is Sirius. Yeah, I think Sirius would be really good, Mister Dursley. He sh- he should do a one act play where he just plays all the characters. <laughs> all of Harry Potter by Benedict Cumberbatch in one act, all seven books. 
That'd be great. Yeah. I liked this movie a lot. It surprised me yeah. how much I liked it. And uh, it has stuck with both of us post-watching it. I want to see it again. Me too. How did it make you feel? Um, just so pleasantly surprised because I think much like you, I kind of have an expectation going into films that have this sort of vibe and setting. So I was so happy that it had the outcome that it did. And, and it was just such a gift, such a gift. What about you? I was just riveted. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. That's great. Okay. Next one. Super fun. What a gift. (laughs) We, this is my mystery movie pick. And I picked the 1985 comedy Tampopo. It was written and directed by Yuzo Itami. And it stars Ken Watanabe's gun, Sutomo Yamasagi as Goro, and Noboku Miyamoto as Tampopo herself. The synopsis is I didn't really like any of the synopsis that were on any of the any of the movie sites, but there was one there's one that I've kind of paraphrased from Tessa Thompson in an interview she did about this movie. Uh, so I put together a ragtag group of friends coming together in the pursuit of making the perfect bowl of ramen. This I I love this so much. This is kind of all over. This is that. We've heard the term spaghetti western before, but this is kind of known as a ramen western or a Japanese noodle western. So this is what's funny to me is we watched two westerns this week, but they're not westerns in the traditional sense. Yeah. And I love that. I think I I think I do really well with taking a genre that I don't necessarily love, but then manipulating that genre and doing something new with it and then I can love it. Yeah. Just like a straight John Wayne, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Western? That ain't ever going to be for me. But give me this like Shakespearean Western. Or a Western set in a ramen noodle shop. <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> and you've got me hooked. <laughs> um, I've been wanting to watch this for a while. But it just recently, it kind of came back up on my radar. And I've been wanting... I, I just know there's things about us where we're just kind of a couple of quirky numbskulls where if there's something that we like, we kind of start calling our cat it or we just kind of start bringing it into our day-to-day lexicon. And I've been wanting to start calling Thompson Tampopo for a while now. Oh, this was preemptive. Yes. You were holding off until we watched and the movie. It almost slipped out so many times, but I'm like, I can't say it because then she'll be onto what my mystery movie pick oh, might be. Oh, since you decided you wanted to watch it, you've been wanting to call him Tampopo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. and I will confirm that since we've watched this film, we have started calling him Tampopo. You'll be like, oh, Tampopo, <laughs> hi. Um, so I'm so happy I can start saying Tampopo more, more often. It also is like, honestly, a pretty legit nickname for Thompson. Oh, yeah. Big time. Tampopo. Oh, <laughs> We should call him Tom Popo. He's asleep beside you right now, but he, Tom Popo. (laughs) He didn't Um, react. What did you think of Tom Popo? This movie was so fucking fun. Yes. Like just, wow. (laughs) This movie is so alive. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I loved it so much. Yeah. 
had a few realizations watching it. One of which being, it's kind of it's kind of a special feeling when you watch a film that you feel like it nails the exact kind of thing that you like. In this case, the humor. Oh, there's something about Japanese humor that just hits both of us right in the funny bone. Like I do really like. There's two kinds of humor I'm really drawn to. One is that really dry understated humor that tends to be more prevalent in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's like the Banshees of Inish- I thought Banshees of Inishirin was a riot. So funny. But I don't think everybody who watches it would think so. Mm. Um, and, you know, back in the day, I really liked like Ricky Gervais. Not so much anymore. Um, the other kind of humor I like is just like super silly and joyous. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. Yeah. And it's not like stupid for stupid sake. It's no, it's no, um, I don't know what movies are. It's no like dumb and dumber. Yeah. It's, it's smart in its silliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like we had watched, it was a long time ago, Good Morning. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen. So now seeing this, I'm like, maybe Japanese comedies are like the exact comedy I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Also, this movie's very me. The opening scene has a character talking about movie theater etiquette. Yeah. He's talking right into camera, talking to us as the audience. And he's in a movie theater talking about annoying audience members and optimal movie going experiences. Which if you've listened to our show, you know, we're harping on it. And I will be the one to say something. We also, I'm sure we've mentioned it in the show before, but I love treats. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think I asked you one time, what's your favorite word? And without missing a beat, you said treats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you look at me and you're like, hey, do you want to go get some ice cream? Or like, I don't know. I could even just say, do you want to, do you want to get a treat? I would be like a, like a dog. Like, like oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have, <laughs> <Let's> a, <go. laughs> I feel like a hive, I would have a hundred percent of your attention. Oh yeah. Whatever you're doing, it'd be dropped. Even if I was in the middle of reading and I hate when you bug me when I'm in the middle of reading, I'd be like, treat. Oh, what do you got in mind? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. There's there's a great scene with a child who doesn't often get treats being offered a treat, and his little hand is just like clenching, clenching in anticipation. And I'm like, I just looked at you and pointed at myself, yeah. me. And I'm like, treat, treat. <laughs> so I loved um, the focus on food. You and I love food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very food motivated people. Yeah, the the shots of food, and again, this being so focused on our characters making that perfect bowl of ramen and making a ramen shop, Tampopo's ramen shop, successful. There's a lot of food shots of ramen. That oh my god! And I love ramen. Ramen's so. We good. do have a favorite ramen in the city, and I think after we saw Good Morning, which also had ramen heavily featured. No, it wasn't Good Morning. What was it we watched that had ramen in it a lot? After Yang? Maybe. And then we like immediately went and got ramen. Um, yeah. Made me want that Loma House ramen. If you live in the Edmonton area and you have not eaten at Loma House, it is a vegan, vegetarian, mostly vegan, some vegetarian dishes. It has the best vegan ramen in the city yeah. that I've had. Our unofficial rad wreck of the week is... Oh, eat at Loma House. Eat at Loma and the House the owner Edmonton. and staff are just so kind and the fact that they lovely. survived the the worst of the pandemic is a gift. 
Yeah, I, I love that place. It's also one of the only like non-franchise vegan restaurants on the south side. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to go downtown, which is nice. Anyway, besides the point, <sighs> made me want to eat ramen. It, I agree. Me too. This this story, like it's so simple in what it what it's trying to tell. And it did such a great job of making me so hyped for such a simple story. Like it treated this person, Tam Popo, wanting to make her ramen shop and her ramen better and put it through the lens of like a Rocky movie of like, <laughs> I have to train and become better and do all of these <laughs> things to be the best version of, of what I think a good ramen chef is. And that because you, you know, you're familiar with those kinds of beats um, in the, in those kinds of movies, it does such a great job of making you so pumped for when things happen that you, you know it's kind of coming, but it still gives you so much anticipation and anticipatory excitement about it. It does it expertly. It's it's so great. And it's kind of punctuated. We watched some special features after this with these kind of vignettes, or as the the special feature referred to it as side dishes throughout the film of different kind of offshoot stories that only a couple are kind of carried through the film, but we kind of go off to these folks that aren't our main characters and it's just this little micro focus on their story as it relates to food. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was such a, it was a bit of a jarring choice at first. Cause we're kind of like, who are these people and how do they factor into anything? But then as it started kind of becoming a trend throughout the film that we're just going to kind of do these little vignettes to focus on these people. I actually, as I was thinking about it later, I love that he did that. The filmmaker. So I want to talk about um, there's a line in the film that is so wonderful. And then we watched three, I think, of the featurettes on Criterion Channel that I think are on the Criterion Channel or not Criterion Channel. Sorry, the Criterion version of the film, if you purchase it. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them, it's like a mini essay. And it focuses on this line, uh, which is normal food for normal people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the idea of the amateur versus the professional. So there was another featurette we watched with Nabuko Miyamoto, who plays Tampopo, but she was also the partner of uh, the director. And she said that his goals, Atami's goals when he made a film, were to do three things. One, have it be surprising. Check. This movie is very surprising. Mm -hmm. Two, to have it be fun. And three, be able to be understood by anyone. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that a lot and thinking about the distinction between being understood by anyone and being understood by everyone. Right. Because being under, and you and I had been talking about this, being understood by everyone, not to poop on King of Staten Island too much, but it seems like something a film like that is trying to do. Yes. Like so that everyone comes out of this with the same understanding. Mm-hmm. Whereas to be understood by anyone to me says anyone is capable of understanding this as it means something to them individually. I love that. As opposed to everyone is going to walk out of this understanding the same thing. Yeah. That's such a good approach to anything. Yeah. I love it so much because there are some things that are a little like puzzling about its structure or about what it's saying, but 
at the end of the day, I think it is done in this vein of joy and fun and surprise in such a way that a person can come out of this being like, this is what I got out of it. This is what I loved about it. And it's accessible in that sense, but it's not accessible in the sense of every single person is going to love this movie and understand it in the same way. I don't feel like it's trying to cast a wide net so that anybody, regardless of who they are, can love it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's trying to create an environment in which a person can connect to it in their own individual way and understand it without needing to go like, you know, like, I love Eraserhead. I love, you know, movies like that, but I often, or The Green Knight, but mm -hmm. I often don't understand them until I, like, read smarter people than me explaining them. Right. And those are not able to be understood by anyone. Mm -hmm. Neither do I love films that are meant to be understood by everyone. Mm -hmm. It's this, I love a film, take a shot, like After Sun where you can come away with a sense of your own understanding and a confidence in that understanding without it having to be identical to everyone else's mm -hmm. because the film was created in such a way as to give you the space to do that without having a particular agenda. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. I love that so much. Cause yeah, like I, I feel, I don't know if this is the right word, but it, it feels like kind of almost ignorant or greedy to aim to make a film for everyone. It's impossible. Yeah. And it it's just, I feel like it's a detriment to your film. Whereas if you're coming at it where anyone can enjoy it, that opens up so many more possibilities for people to enjoy it in their own unique ways mm -hmm. or to hate it in their own unique ways, but to develop their own opinion. Whereas I feel if you're making something for everyone, it's very easy to be like, well, not for me. Um, you can, and you can be so much more dismissive of it or, or on the opposite end, just like blatantly be like, yeah, I loved it. It was exactly, it was exactly that. I don't know. It, fe it feels like there's less depth and understanding of the audience. Or maybe perhaps it's less of a willingness to allow the audience to be anyone. Less trust. Yeah. To like open this up to like. This is something I tell my creative writing students, students, students. This is something I tell my creative writing students is you aren't trusting your reader. Yeah. Like you had all of these beautiful lines that were very clear to me about what you were trying to do. And then it's like at the last moment you lost trust that your reader was going to get that without you spelling it out. Yeah. And so you added this like expository sentence or this concrete sentence to encapsulate everything that you had just done such a beautiful job of more abstractly or more image-based or more sensory exploration. Mm -hmm. And you, you took that ability to connect on a more individual level away from your reader. Yeah. And that's just like such thoughtful thinking that I appreciate from anything. Are you saying I'm a thoughtful thinker? Yeah. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. Kind. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that. I love that approach and I love that thinking. Do you, like, how do you understand the distinction between anyone and everyone? I, I think that, I think it's exactly what, you, what, you, what you're saying. I think that for anyone, that anyone can come into this movie and watch this movie. And I think that there's things about it that are so, 
relatable and accessible. I mean, specifically the the thought that we all eat. Mm-hmm. We all have a relationship with food, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. And it can have an effect on our lives or it, the way that it plays into our lives can be different. And we're all, we're all, you know, critical of food and the part that it plays in our lives. And I think that that is just something that's so accessible for anybody to put their story or their lives into because it's such a core thing to being human is eating. If you're making something for everyone, you're kind of telling them that they need to think a certain way or have certain feelings about a thing. But this movie goes out of its way to show that that's not the case. That's what I kind of get from that. Like it's kind of setting a path for for yourself or showing you that there's branching paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tessa Thompson in her little piece talked about how Tempopo means dandelion. And then she talked about like when you blow a dandelion, it like it meanders and it, you know, the, what would they be called? The like pollens or whatever. Um, they just like dance through the air and they go in all different spaces and that the film kind of functions in that way and you have to kind of decide what you're going to follow. Yeah, it's really, I loved it. Yeah. It was so funny and yet it was also really thoughtful and it was also very cinematic. Yeah, and the characterizations are great. I love the dynamic between Goro and Tampopo. The little adventures that they go on together is so... It, it's so lovely. Um, there's a there's a scene in it that actually like strangely like kind of got me a little bit emotional, and it's 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 a scene I didn't expect to get emotional in. Um, that it, it has to do with a, a group of people singing a song, and it's funny as I was kind of looking some stuff up about about it after the fact, and I'm I mean I'm still on a kick of watching everything everywhere all at once content online but there's actually an interview with the daniels the directors and writers of everything everywhere all at once where they're talking about tampopo and actually how that scene is emotionally resonant in them and do they show that scene in the interview yeah because i think we've watched that interview because when we were watching the film i'm like i've seen this scene before and i don't know from what (laughs) yeah so obviously we'd seen that before but and something stuck with me that like this is like an emotional thing but Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there was something about that scene that, and the things that the people were singing that just kind of hit me in the heart a little bit, which I thought was really cool and unexpected, and I really liked it. Um, and it, it didn't even need to be there, but it's just such a beautiful and kind of tender moment. And I love the camera work that's happening and our character, what our characters are doing. It's great. Also, the ending shot is great, and I for sure has probably pissed off some conservative people. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. Thematically resonant and like also hilarious and also tender and brilliant. Yeah. Honestly, it's up there with the um, in a different way, but similar way with pearls. Pearl? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, also, uh, one of our listeners, Isaac, after was like, you watch Tempopo. Finally, he was on it ahead of us. Um, shared with us that there is a Tampopo themed or not themed, but inspired homaged restaurant, ramen restaurant in Calgary, um, which apparently has delicious ramen, including a vegan option. So we can eat there. 
Um, and it's the exterior of it is modeled after the like the shop in Tampopo, and then it's quite beautiful inside. It's called Goro and Gun. Um, so cool. I'm like, I, I don't know if we plan to find ourselves in Calgary anytime soon, but the next time we're there, definitely Gor- eating Goro there. And Gun. So cool. Yeah, I would, and I would love. I don't, I don't know how we would go about doing this, but I would love to talk with the owners about Tampopo <laughs> and their relationship with it and like why it's so important to them to the point that they would want to name their shop after two characters in Tampopo. Yeah. Love this movie. The more that I, it's another one, the more I sat with it, the more I loved it. And the more we've talked about it here, even more appreciation for it. How did Tampopo make you feel? It made me feel absolutely, absolutely delighted and also hungry. <laughs> yeah, I, I have that too. Delighted, and I, I have craved ramen ever since we watched it. <laughs> um, and I'm also just like, I felt so swept up and invested in the story and the characters. And then I'm also just so happy to kind of have discovered that Japanese humor in cinema is our jam. Yeah. Like, I feel like this kind of solidified it that if there is a Japanese comedy out there, we're probably going to, we're probably going to dig its vibe. Korean and French dramas, Japanese comedies. Yes. Okay. We got one more. Man, I like didn't know how I was going to feel about this movie. Watching it again. I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> so as part of, we've been really into going to the real family cinema, um, curated collection that Metro Cinema puts on every Saturday. Um, It's just a cool chance to see things that we liked when we were kids in the theater that we've never seen in the theater. And this week they were playing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 1971. Never seen it in the theater. Haven't seen it in ages. Yes. But watched it a lot as a kid. Um, So it's a family fantasy musical Directed by Mel Stewart, screenplay by David Seltzer, and although he rejected it, hated it, spoke out against it, is based on the book by Roald Dahl. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Apparently, Roald Dahl was an absolute piece of crap. So, oh. who cares? Um, well, people have made some great stuff from his stuff. Yeah. I.E. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I.E. Matilda. I- Both the musical and the um, Danny DeVito film. I.E. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, absolutely. So the main cast that I'm going to highlight for the starring is, of course, Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka, Jack Albertson as Grandpa Joe, and Peter Ostrom as Charlie. Basically, one-time acting job he did. He's now a veterinarian, but he frequently um, does... All five of the kids frequently do, like, retrospectives, and, like, they did a 30th anniversary um, audio commentary. Really? Yeah, and only one of them continued in an acting career after this, but obviously it impacted all of them enough in like a positive way to continue to be proud of the work they did when they were children. That's really really cool. cool. That is really cool. And you know what? I'm not surprised he became a veterinarian. He's got a vet face. Apparently he was not like super impressed with just the experience of what being a film star was after this film. And so he used his money to buy a horse and then he liked that horse so much he became a veterinarian. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, Cool. It's really, life takes us in weird places. So if you have never heard of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, synopsis, a poor but hopeful boy seeks one of the five coveted golden tickets that will send him on a tour of Willy Wonka's mysterious chocolate factory. This is a film we'd seen as kids. I think me perhaps more than you. 
mm-hmm. that we had seen, hadn't seen in ages. I don't think we've ever watched together. No. What did you think of not only revisiting Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but seeing it in the theater? Well, I mean, this was a a childhood staple for me, but I haven't seen it that many times. Like it wasn't a film that I owned or anybody mm. in my family owned. It was a strictly, if it was on TV, I would watch it. But it was it. on TV a lot. Yeah. Like almost guaranteed on like a Sunday afternoon, you could turn on the TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is playing. So, but like I, yeah, I didn't watch it. I feel like I didn't watch it a ton, but I still remember a lot of the beats from it mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff that happens. And I love watching movies from my childhood that do that. Mm-hmm. Like it just makes you excited of like, oh yeah, this is coming next. This is this is happening next. Um, yeah, seeing in the theater was really cool. Like I, I always kind of am just like, yeah, okay, it's playing in the theater, but. I don't know. There's something special about seeing stuff you grew up watching at home and, and have only seen at home on the big screen. Yeah. There, so there's something so interesting about just what your eye notices mm. in a theater. I mean, we have a fairly big TV. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like noticing, you know, when Violet, what happens to Violet happens. And like on the big screen being like, oh, that's a dummy. Yeah. You know, but like I've never noticed that on a smaller screen and it still looks pretty darn good, but just like yeah. where, what your eye can pick up on a, on a big screen. And I have to say this movie holds up visually yeah. for 1971. It kind of boggled my mind that it was 1971. It feels like it has to be the nineties because I watched it when I was a kid. Mm, right. Uh, it's strange. Cause yeah, it's, it's 71, but the setting is. I don't even know. It's earlier than that. So Mel Stewart wanted it to feel ageless. Like he specifically, I guess, didn't put or tried to avoid having vehicles in it as much as possible so that like the vehicles wouldn't age it. Um, Because it had very 19s. Like I remember seeing the vehicles and thinking they had a bit of a 70s vibe, which makes sense. Yeah. Well, because they were filming in the 70s. Yeah. But yeah, he wanted it to have a kind of ageless then he shouldn't put up all those Quality. cell phones in there. <laughs> just, just, just kidding. Because <laughs> <laughs> futuristic it was. <laughs> this movie, though, is, very, is manic. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. It is like both an absolute, like who that saw this when they were a child didn't want to run into that chocolate chocolate river area and just like chomp into one of those like candy mushrooms. Yeah, that's the one that sticks with me is like the big red and white mushroom with like the the like yeah. whipped cream. So I was just going to ask you, when you watched it as a kid, what was the thing you wanted to eat the most in that room? I think it's that. Yeah, me too. It was I, I wanted to just dig into that whipped cream. Well, it's the mom that's doing it. It's I the know. adults that are like, you can have your candy. I'm, I'm going for it. It wasn't the, the big gummy bears. Never the lollipops or the candy canes. Are you kidding me? If that's your favorite candy, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. Um not the chocolate river either. I mean, it kind of scares you out of that. But do you, did you would you believe that the chocolate river was really chocolate? Really? So it was It looks so watery. So I have this from IMDb trivia. The chocolate river was made from 150,000 gallons of water, real chocolate and cream. Filmmakers had to change the formula for the chocolate river because originally the concoction they were using turned blood red and because of the cream the mixture began to spoil by the end of filming. It smelled terrible. Christ. Michael Bolner, who played Augustus Gloop, later described it as dirty, stinky water. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. 
But do you know what's probably like pretty awful? Because there's a ton of that. There's a ton of that chocolate, dirty, stinky water in that. They'd probably just like dump that in the river. <laughs> probably, especially if it's spoiled. Nobody's drinking that. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of things with this. Uh, it is a musical. It's got some very famous songs that have come from this um, that I feel like you and I kind of sing randomly. Oh, we sing come with often. me and you'll see like yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's so funny, like rewatching it. I totally forgot about this, like cheer up Charlie song that Charlie Bucket's mom sings. If you could cut anything out of this movie, cut that number out. And in fact, TV networks did. <laughs> and considering you usually watched it on TV, you actually maybe never really saw that scene. Yeah. Maybe. And it's a snooze. <laughs> so maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, what's this doing here? Honestly, the thing for me that stops this from being like a five out of five is how long it takes to get to the chocolate factory. You don't like the whole contest bit? I do. But once you've seen it, once you've seen it. You know who's going. Yeah. You know who wins. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there were some cheers. when <laughs> Charlie finds his golden ticket. In the audience. It was so cute. Just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And there was an extended applause at the end of yeah. this movie. And this was, there was, I don't know if you noticed, a group of like what appeared to me to be four adult men. Just like they're <laughs> with each other. They were there before we got there. And we got there pretty early. Like stationed in like what must be their favorite spot in the theater. Snacks ready to go. And I'm like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. Because maybe for them, this really was their childhood. Like. They were born in the 70s, right? <laughs> so but yeah, there was some very enthusiastic applause at the end of this when there was like maybe 50 people in the theater. <laughs> maybe. Very, yeah. very cute. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for this movie that makes it incredible is Gene Wilder. Phenomenal. Like, I, I mean, growing up, you're always kind of like, oh, yeah, that, that's Willy Wonka. He's like kind of kooky, whatever. No. Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka is just my type of energy in this movie. I did lean over to you at one point and say, he's me and you combined. Yeah. He's my grouchiness and like, eh, no, please don't stop. <laughs> and like your... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have a couple pieces of trivia about Gene Wilder that I really need to share with you. Okay. This one's my favorite one. So after reading the script, Gene Wilder said he would only take the role of Willy Wonka under one condition, that he would be allowed to limp, then suddenly somersault in the scene when he first meets the children. <laughs> when director Mel Stewart asked why, Wilder replied that having Wonka do this meant that, quote, from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. Stewart asked, if I say no, you won't do the picture? And Wilder said, I'm afraid that's the truth. That's amazing. <laughs> that's so awesome. I also like it was so funny rewatching that scene because like as soon as he walks out, like nobody's seen Wonka in years. He walks out and he has this cane and this limp and everyone, everyone like he, wa he first walks out, everyone's cheering and then it's the cheering kind of stops once they see he has a cane and a limp. And it's just like what? Everyone's just like, oh, he has a limp. He sucks. Well, here's the thing, though. So Mel Stewart and Gene Wilder chose specific things not to tell the cast about. Mm hmm. So the the entire cast, inclu including the extras, didn't know that he was going to have a limp. So like, oh, he's yeah. So some of the kids have said they thought that Gene Wilder got hurt, and were like, oh, are we going to have to like pause filming? So that was one. 
um, the cast was not informed about where the tunnel scene was going. <laughs> and several of the adults thought no that idea. Gene Wilder was having a psychotic meltdown. Like legitimately were like, um... There's no telling him where we're going. <laughs> and also the Grandpa Joe and Charlie weren't informed about like how they would be yelled at at the end of the like oh so like they're So Gene Wilder is like going off. Yeah, and he and I guess he felt really badly about that because it's quite intense. Yeah. But they wanted to have those uh genuine reactions. And you know, to connect to power of the dog, they did a lot of that there too, where like they withheld the degree to which like there's a scene where Benedict Cumberbatch yells quite off, like really intensely and they were not told that, that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it, 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 very interesting. A um, couple other Gene Wilder trivias. When asked his thoughts on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the 2005 film, Gene Wilder stated that he enjoyed Johnny Depp's performance as Willy Wonka, but disliked the film as a whole, was not a fan of Tim Burton as a director and was generally insulted that his film had been remade. <laughs> Well, cause here's the thing. If you're remaking this story, I feel like you have no choice but to do it drastically differently, especially when you approach the character of Willy Wonka. Because he's the best. Because Gene Wilder did such a great job of making him feel both childlike but menacing. Yeah. And unpredictable. And what's the opposite of that? Obviously, it's just like really weird shut-in Johnny Depp. Yeah, I liked it as a kid because as I've, I guess as a 15-year-old, as I've mentioned, I was a ashamedly a huge Johnny Depp fan. And um, yeah, I've seen that more times than I'd like, but it's out, it's out of there now. Here's the best thing to encapsulate why the 2005 remake is poo-poo. According to director Mel Stewart, when Gene Wilder walked into the audition, Stewart know before knew before he'd even uttered a single word, word that he had found his Willy Wonka. The audition convinced him of this even further, so when Wilder finished and left the room, Stuart chased him down the hallway, cut him off at the elevator bank, grabbed his arm, and told him, you're doing this picture, no two ways about it, you are Willy Wonka. Producer David L. Wolper, however, was furious because he hadn't yet had the chance to negotiate the fee. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gene Wilder's like, sure, I'll do it, but as long as I get to do a, a limp and then a somersault. <laughs> Yeah, just wild. I also read that um, Charlie, uh, Gene Wilder, and Pete Peters, as name Peter Ostrom, ate lunch together every day, That's and cute. they would finish with a shared chocolate bar. That's really cute. Really cute, and that Gene Wilder liked all of the kids except Mike TV. <laughs> I get it. He seemed like a real shithole. <laughs> I get it. Oh man, I don't like. I just once you get to the factory and once Willy Wonka is there, like this is such a like th this is such great entry-level horror like it if is. you love this as a kid you're probably going to grow up to like horror movies well it exactly be it's because willy wonka is unreliable mm -hmm. it's and un he's unpredictable he you he's manic he's depressed he's angry he's whimsical like it's just yeah there, there's there's so much joy but there's also just such a he he's just so kind of removed from everything purposefully. No, don't yeah. stop. <laughs> well, there's there was a scene, there was a moment that really stuck with me. It's when he's singing the "Come with me and you'll see." It's kind of our first big introduction to the major set piece of the factory. It's gorgeous. Um, and I kind of describe it as practical whimsy. Like in the there's this one shot that we that we kind of settle on 
where he's still singing and the lyrics are kind of describing the factory as this magical place that's otherworldly. And he's in the foreground, but in the background, it's all factory windows. Like Mm. it's all just like manufacturing, right? Like it's very. This movie is just pure juxtaposition because even in that song, the way that Gene Wilder sings it is so whimsical and magical, but the score is eerie. They're like, dun, 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 dun. Like it's it's a little creepy. Yeah. But then he's got this very like pure imagination and it's like mm-hmm. it that feels like a musical and that feels exciting. But there's just like this hint of nefarious intent beneath it or like something ominous beneath it. And the whole film manages to balance that so well. Well, yeah, it, it throws you off too because like things start happening to the people that are getting the tour of the factory. And in one moment, the the parents and the kids are kind of like, what the hell's going on? And then in the next beat, they're kind of like, ooh. <laughs> and even like even in their interactions with Willy Wonka, where like they're kind of um, attacking or coming at him, but then he'll say something that just kind of, knocks them off their balance and they're, then they're just kind of knocked back into the whimsy of it all. Well, I mean, the great example of it is that that tunnel scene, which is listed on many like scariest movie moments of all time list. Mm-hmm. It's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember being terribly upset by it as a kid, but watching it as an adult, I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. Um, and then like it just ends with we're here. Yeah. Like, also, this movie is hilarious. Like, this is, when I say, like, the one kind of humor I like is, like, the Banshees of Insurance humor, that's this kind of humor. Yeah. This just, like, dry, dark humor. Mm-hmm. Or, like, even, the like, putting shoes into the candy mix to get a little kick in it. Yeah. Like, clever. Yeah. Like, I just, and and absurd. It's absurdist, right? Oh, big time. Like, the, the scene with, like the foam and then there's no, like the, where they're getting washed, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like it's absurd. Yeah. In a nightmarish way. Like it's got, yeah. um, and I don't think, I haven't read the book in a long time and I didn't read a lot of Roald Dahl as a kid. I, I loved the Matilda movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think, the this movie has very, like Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland vibes. Mm, yeah. But I don't think the book does. Yeah. That kind of combination of whimsy and absurdity with terror that Alice in Wonderland has. And I think that's what captures so many people. I am self-proclaimed, ashamedly Hot Topic Girl, and Hot Topic Girls start with Alice in Wonderland and Nightmare Before Christmas. Right? Yeah. And I do love Alice in Wonderland and Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, Alice in Wonderland is horrifying. Off with her head? Yeah. It's it's, uh, even like her... Getting really small and then like almost, almost drowning. drowning in her own tears. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. 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 Can I share with you one of my, even though he's pee pee poo poo, this is one of my favorite things about Roald Dahl. Sure. That I know. Yeah. Do you know anything about his last words? I do, but I've forgotten. So in the hospital, surrounded by his family, Dahl reassured everyone sweetly that he wasn't afraid of death. And he said, 
It's just that I will miss you all so much, he said, and those were his perfect final words. Then as everyone sat quietly around him, a nurse pricked him with a needle, and he said his actual last words, which were, Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love that Perfect last words. Um, And another thing I really love about this movie, and when movies do this, is it's one of those films that when it gets to the ending... It's just like the main thing we've been building towards. And then we just like cut to credits. It's my favorite kind of ending. Like it's not like we get that and then we get some sort of button that kind of wraps everything up. It's just like, nope, this is what ha- it's kind of like Hot Rod. <laughs> <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Hot Rod, one and the same. Yeah. I have to ask you. Mm. When you prior to rewatching this, if you had went back into your memories of watching this as a kid. Mm-hmm. What's the part that you remember upsetting you the most? I'm not not necessarily not necessarily scaring you, but upsetting you. If I'm being honest, it's the four grandparents in the bed. <laughs> that, Go on. When I was a kid, I still thought that was the grossest shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just like they haven't gotten out of bed in 20 years. And then knowing that they could get out of bed. That poor mom, who had to be their caretaker on top of everything else, changing and lazy the, assholes, changing their bedpans, and there is a bedpan under the bed, and having to wash on. them like I, that's bed sore central. You just yeah, unrealistic. Grandpa Joe would have had bed sores. He's probably sneaking out to go get his tobacco. Like it's like where do you where, where do you get the chocolate bar? Where do you get from? the chocolate bar? Yeah, I have a memory. This is like um, what do they call it? Mandela effect hmm. of like. Grandpa Joe just like getting out of bed, clicking his heels. But then in watching it, it's like, oh no, he's like struggling and falling over. He's like the Tin and, Man. Oh, he is like the Tin Man. It's like an in between of like the silliness of the Tin Man and the way that like Kill Bill tries to handle that in a very realistic way. <laughs> yeah. Of like, yeah, your limbs would atrophy. You wouldn't be able to walk. Right. Yeah. Um. So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. They do imply that Grandpa Joe hasn't gotten out of bed and this is going to be tough for him. You know what scared me the most? Hmm. Or upset me the most was the um the gum. What happens with the gum? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So much of this is it is so interesting because some people like get really upset by that tunnel scene. I probably thought it was cool. Um, I thought I thought you were going to ask me what do I think of this movie from an advertising perspective? Because the marketing campaign they run in this with the golden tickets is probably the most Willy successful Wonka's, marketing Willy campaign. Wonka is just Jeff Bezos. Let's be yeah. honest. I want to see the numbers after that contest runs of oh. how many Wonka bars are sold. The way they shame Charlie in school when they're like, he's like, teacher, how many chocolate bars did, how many Wonka bars did you buy? And then a hundred, 200. And then Charlie's like two. And he's like, 200. No, two. Well, I can't do that math. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, like like it's expected that people bought hundreds of chocolate bars in the 1970s. Yeah, and the waste, because most of them aren't even eating them. This film also has a little bit of a tampopo in that it like has these weird little vignette asides, mostly with adults, of like trying to find the golden tickets. So that stuff's really funny. That like it never has a through line just to show us the like mania. Mm-hmm. The one with the computer and the one with the missing husband are two of the funniest shits I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like there is a, um, I love a movie for kids that has adult sophistication to it. Yeah. Like this was, 
perhaps more enjoyable to me as a 32 year old than it was when I was a kid. But I liked yeah. it a lot when I was a kid. No, I totally agree. You know, I was just thinking that would have been even more sad is that it, if Charlie got the golden ticket, but the factory was in any other town other than his own, he couldn't have gone. No, because it wasn't an all expenses trip, like to the paid factory. trip to the factory. Yeah. It was just like you had to get yourself show there. up to the factory. So he's just, it's just dumb luck that he happened to live in the same town as the Wonka factory and got a golden ticket. I have a great piece of trivia for you. Hmm. So the tunnel scene has some upsetting imagery. <laughs> yeah. There is a image of bugs crawling over a person's face. Mm-hmm. This was Mel Stewart's friend, Wallen Green. According to Mel Stewart, he was the only person who would agree to let a millipede crawl on his face for the sake of a children's film. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it, but only for the kids. Can you guess? Okay, opening credits, do you remember them? Yes. Did they make you hungry for chocolate? Yes. Can you guess what famous chocolatiering place it was filmed in? Nestle? Nope. Cadbury? Nope. Hershey's? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Christmas? Uh, Ferrero Rocher. And... This chocolate bar looks like something you said you like in Alberta. Toblerone. Yeah, it's filled in a Toblerone chocolate factory in Switzerland. I, I like it. me a Toblerone bar. Me too. They're very sweet though. I feel oh, but like that nougat. I feel like after two little triangles, my teeth want to fall out. I only I used to always get a Toblerone bar at Christmas, and that was the only time I'd ever get Toblerone. Mm -hmm. My dad would buy it for me. This is why I haven't had it, because he's dead. <laughs> Can someone buy me a Toblerone bar? My dad's dead. He doesn't do it anymore. Toblerones went with him. <laughs> <laughs> dad, I miss you in the Toblerone bars. I have to. <laughs> oh, man. I also have to say that Joey wanting a Toblerone bar is one of the best B plots in Friends. Ever. Ever. Toblerones are good. It, Friends was good for anything. It was its B plots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. I just. I really liked this movie. I really, really liked it again. I haven't seen it much as an adult. I have a feeling I'm going to want to rotate it into our film catalog more frequently. And I would, I, I had been thinking about inviting our niece to it, mm -hmm. who's just about 11. Um, but both of my sister's households have just been like circulating sickness and I'm not keen to be involved in that. I would like to have her watch it at some point. And is, get a sense of what she thinks of it. Is it could it be anchored to a holiday? Because I mean, we've seen it in December, but I don't consider it a Christmas movie at all. Easter. But, well, they go to the factory on October first, so that's almost like maybe it, we watch it on. It is. It is horror for children. Yeah. Maybe we watch it on October first every year. That's a great idea. I love that. Perfect. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Okay, what did you think of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Um, I loved it even more as an adult. Um, and the still the like grandparent bed soup made me feel so gross. Uh, it, may, it actually made me feel really bad for Charlie's mom who has to manage all of that, but also not bad enough that we need to keep her musical number in it. <laughs> uh, it also made me really want some sweets. How about you? Ramen and sweets, eh? Yeah. We, yeah, it's literally dinner, dessert. Could be a great double feature. 
Yeah, yeah. This movie made me feel such nightmarish joy. Yeah, that's great. And it just solidified for me why I like, don't have kids. Yeah. Although I did, um, I did elbow you at one point because there's, you know, during one of the Oompa Loompa songs, it's, what do you get when your kid is a brat rotten and spoiled like a Siamese cat? You know exactly who's to blame. And who is it, Elliot? The mother and the, the father. father. And I have to say, our Siamese cat is rotten and spoiled and he is a brat and it is our fault, but he is a good egg. He is not a bad egg. Yeah. Tom Popo himself. Tom Popo himself is a very good egg. That's it. We did That's it. That's it. So many movies. All right. Let's name the bad dad and rad dads of the week. I think we both know who our bad dad is. First name? I thought there were some options. So There were. So first name on three, obviously. Okay. Uh, on three? Uh, three, two, one, and then okay. the name. So three, two, one, Phil. Phil. Yeah, obviously. He's friggin' asshole. Yeah, he's bitter, cynical, petty, unwilling to grow or reflect or admit he's wrong, stuck in the past, big stinky poo-poo. Toxic, impatient, unkind, conniving asshole. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Phil Burbank. Kick rocks. <laughs> okay. Rad dad. There were some good choices here. There were. I don't know if we'll be aligned, but let's hear yours first. I think we should do three, two, one. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Three, two, two one. Tom Popo. Oh. We might have another double rad dad because I feel like the two of them together, <laughs> ultimate. <laughs> None of you who are listening can see, but Elliot was doing some very cute hand motions in his excitement <laughs> to name both Goro and Tampopo uh, co-dads of the week. Okay, tell me a little bit about why you picked Tampopo. Uh, I like that she's driven. She's mm. passionate. I feel like she's very loving, really smart. Um, mm -hmm. And she has a willingness to learn and better herself, not only for herself, but also for her family and the people that she cares about. That's just so lovely. I, I, I loved her as a character. Great dad energy. And Goro? Supportive without an agenda. Like about supporting for the sake of the other person, not... Just for himself. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no point where it's, I want her shop to be successful so I can get money. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's just about like, here is a person that wants to be better and is asking for help. Also, what a great example to add to your rad dad of like asking for support. Yeah. Come help me. You have knowledge I don't have and I want to learn. Mm -hmm. Right? So I love that. I love that support without an agenda. I love that he's tough but fair. Like he's honest with her but never mean about it. I love that he's methodical. Mm -hmm. Like they have like things they do in service of her growing. And it never feels like he's like, oh, I know more than you. It's like, let's go on this journey together and, mm -hmm. and like discover things together. And he's all about honesty. Yeah. Like, but in a, a transparent, fair, kind way. Yeah. Without being um, like overly saccharine or talking down or, you know, trying to soften the truth. Mm -hmm. But without being like overly intense about it. Yeah. Like I think you you showed me a thing where it was like, or maybe it was in one of the featurettes, that the harshest form of criticism that Goro and Gun ever give to Tampopo is through a look. Yeah. And it's to each other, not to her. Mm -hmm. Not like in contrast to, I mean, the bad dads could have been those freaking other ramen shop owners. Mm -hmm. Right. 
I don't know. I love I loved the character of Goro. Yeah. But I love the character of Tempopo. They're really good co-dads in different ways. I think that the I think that they are. I think they need to be co-dads. Okay. Okay. So Tempopo and Goro be, be our, our dads. dads. I do have to ask a question. Yeah. Where's Willy Wonka? Because he's kind of a bad dad. He's kind of a rad dad. Yeah. I know, I know we talk about this a lot, especially in our like daddy deep dive we did on After Sun that bad dad, rad dad is a, I say this a lot when I'm teaching, I'm being reductive for the sake of conversation and as like an entry point, but I understand I'm being reductive. Mm -hmm. Um, We understand bad dad, rad dad is a false binary and we don't think nearly anyone falls into one of those slots neatly. But it gets you into the show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Including our own dads. But where's Willy Wonka? I think think he's both. Which is scary. Uh Uh-huh. He's both, yet neither. (laughs) Non-binary superstar. I want, Willy Wonka. I want to put something out there that we had ne- we've never done before, but I want to put it on the table for consideration and having an inaugural sad dad of the week, which would be Kirsten Dunst's character of Rose from Power oh. of the Dog. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I bring this up because I just haven't seen a character just that is so sad and so out of control, but wants to so badly be in control of their circumstances. And as a result, it's just the saddest character I've ever seen. As, and the saddest character of the week, for we'll really sure. really channel some, the national here, but I'm I'm okay with it. Okay. Sad dad of the week, Rose. Wee, 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 wee. Cheer up. Oh, Rose. <laughs> okay. Very quick rad wreck of the week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my nerd flag fly a little bit. I just finished playing God of War Ragnarok. And it's freaking awesome. Um, I never thought I'd be a God of War guy. And I've only played the 2018 game and now its sequel, God of War Ragnarok. So if, and you know what? It's very on brand for our show because it is very dad and son focused. The whole story focuses around Kratos and his son Atreus Um, and their dynamic and how it grows and shifts and changes. And the arc that they take in in this game, God of War Ragnarok, is an incredible dad and son dynamic and the arc that it goes through is awesome. Uh it's also super fun and if you if you love video games that have a really great story, some really great combat and just some striking visuals. Also if you know me, you know I love a one shot the whole game. This and its predecessor all done in in one shot, one continuous shot the whole game. And I love that. So, Rad Wreck of the Week, if you have the means, play God of War Ragnarok. I believe it's a PlayStation 5 exclusive, or a PlayStation exclusive. You can also play it on PlayStation 4. But Or if you like watch-throughs. Yeah. YouTube is free. Go on YouTube, find a favorite YouTube gamer, and, and watch their playthrough, because it is worth it. it I'm, I'm currently... Re, re, I just finished playing the main story, and I'm re-watching it. I'm, I'm re-watching Jacksepticeye play it on YouTube. It's fantastic. And uh, before you do your little wrap up, Elliot, I do want to mention um, this was the week of Spotify wrapped. Hmm. And um, many folks shared with us like through DM or letting us know in person 
or like tagging us in their stories that we were in their top 10, top five, sometimes top like number one. Yeah. Um, which was really special and lovely. Like we haven't even been doing this a year. Um, and to have like people who are drawn to these conversations and get something, get something out of hearing us chat about movies, it means the absolute world. So if you have, um, us in your Spotify wrapped and you want to share it with us, um, please send us a DM. Um, we'd love to know that we mean something to people out there. Helps us feel excited to keep going. And, you know, we're trucking towards our one year mark, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just been a really lovely way to remind us of why we do this. Um, I had a friend coworker who I'm, listens to us and and said like you should be really proud of what you do mm -hmm. um and that was really really sweet and nice and yeah so thank you for listening yeah. that we can then feel proud of what we do yeah the like we were kind of looking through our wrapped and we had spent we we have uploaded in 36 episodes we had uploaded 3.4 thousand minutes of content and, and some of you have listened to all of that which is a lot of time to spend with us we're know. just stinky poo-poos. Yeah. A couple a couple stinky nuggets. So thank you for listening to our stinky nugget conversations. Yeah. We we really appreciate all of you choosing to spend time with us. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. We drop a new one every Thursday. And until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. And like Kylie said, if you have if you have us in your top anything on your streaming services for podcast, let us know. We, we love hearing that kind of stuff and we appreciate it so much. Or if you don't have Spotify, we don't use Spotify to listen to podcasts. Um, you just want to share with us that you listen, what you like about it. Like that would mean the world to us too. How do we make you think and feel? Yeah. Um, you can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could please drop us a rating, a review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But that is going to do it for these two Oompa Loompas this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot, and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Mm -hmm.